Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of China Manufacturing Decoded. This is episode 137. And today is a special episode. I have with me two authors of a an interesting book, a well-written book called Enterprise China, Stuart Black and Alan Morrison. Uh, maybe I let each of you uh, go ahead and Give us a, an intro about your, your background and then we'll talk about the book because it's full of, uh, full of interesting, let's say, food for thought and, uh, uh, it, it will lead us into, uh, interesting discussions. Uh, maybe Stuart, do you want to go ahead? Uh, sure. So for a little over 30 years, I've been a professor of, uh, global leadership and strategy and currently am the chief strategy officer for a very large multinational law firm, uh, Squires, Patton, and Boggs, and first uh, went to China in uh, 1989. So a long uh, association with an interest in China. Nice. Um, uh, maybe, Alan, can you tell us yeah. a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so thank you, uh, Stuart. Uh, and it's, it's, um, it's good to participate. Thank you for inviting us to participate. Uh, yeah, like Stuart, even though we were at different uh, institutions, my first trip to China was back in uh, 1989. I've been going back to China uh, every year, multiple times a year. I've been a visiting professor twice in China and uh, worked with thousands of uh, expatriate managers working in China, as well uh, as uh, Chinese enterprises that are trying to compete and in competing increasingly well uh, on a global uh, basis. So this book uh, really has its genesis for both of us in our, our long history of working in China with multinationals and in China with Chinese firms, recognizing that the nature of competition has been evolving and I think has really uh, reached a, a pivotal point. Yeah, that's right. It comes out very clear. So. Just a few more words. So the, the book is called Enterprise China. Comes out December the 1st. Oh, wow. Okay. December 1st. Um, and it, it can be pre-purchased on Amazon uh, and probably Barnes and & Nobles and so on. Um, right, the absolutely. Sub, the subtitle is Adopting a Competitive Strategy for Business Success. And it it's it's not one of these academic books which is you know kind of hard to read for for practitioners you know it's it's full of examples there's a number of interesting and and insightful graphs that really show how things have been moving and it's 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 really breaking down and analyzing sort of the like china were a company sort of right and okay what's the strategy to to cement the domestic market, to go abroad, to to win, to 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 make sure that you know we we reach our objectives. That's really um, uh, the way it comes out in the book, and it's nicely laid out. Can you maybe first give us like an overall summary of what is China's strategy? You know, without going into much detail, but give us a little bit of flavor. Uh, how do you analyze it? So I'll take the first uh, strategic pillar because there are three. So. China has sought for a long time and really increased their emphasis on the first pillar in the last 10, 15 years of reducing their external dependency, especially in key technology areas. So for a long time, they had to import 
key technology. And their first objective is to have that technology produced locally. Uh, import substitution is a different uh, word for it. And that got uh, most formally talked about in Made in China 2025. And they uh, identified 10 areas, but many of those areas had been identified in uh, previous year's sort of strategy plans. Um, but that's the first pillar. And they are uh, well along their way in certain areas, uh, struggling to replace uh, foreign companies and foreign products in other areas. But that's the first pillar. And I'll right. leave it to Alan to take the next two. And, and there's a lot of, uh, if I may jump in, there's a lot of talk these days about um, the, the 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 very advanced uh, semiconductors, right? But right. Uh, and and China has been sort of struggling. I mean, still str- yeah, struggling, and and we we don't know when they will really say, right. okay, we are self sufficient. But in a range of other uh, industries, they have made so much progress. They are actually self sufficient. That that's really strategy they've been pursuing here. Yeah, that, absolutely. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so so yeah. So thank you, sir. So that that's the first pillar and. To just step back, the, the idea here is that it, many company, many countries have very clear uh, strategies for how they'll advance in the world. Uh, some are well thought out, some are well articulated, communicated. In the case of China, it is well thought out and it has been uh, art, uh, articulated mm-hmm. and it has been communicated. And that doesn't mean they're always 100% successful in everything that they do, but mm-hmm. the, the first pillar is to is to reduce and even eliminate dependencies on the rest of the world. Mm. The second mm. pillar is they, they want to dominate domestically, which means that they, they want to take a significant market share and they've actually targeted their market share in, in selected industries. There's, there's a, it started with more than a dozen, 15, and they've reduced that to focus really on, a, on 10 different industries really pretty broadly defined industries that are kind of at the heart of the fourth industrial revolution. These are the industries we in the West would think of as the future of uh, the drivers of economic growth. And so they want to dominate those industries. And, they, and they've been very clear that they want to have it, depending on the industry, 70 or 80 or even 85 percent market share in China. Uh, they, they've been communicating this for a long time. Now, many Western companies aren't paying attention, but it, it's pretty clear that's what they're after, and they seem very determined. That reminds me of a uh, an experience I had in uh, in Shenzhen around 2015. You could see a lot of Samsung distribution all around right. the city, and then around 2019, pre-COVID, I remember walking in Huachiangbei, which is like the central place where all of these electronic stores are, and I was like where can I find an, a Samsung tablet here? But there's like nothing. It's impossible no. even to find physically. Yeah. It was still possible to buy online, but like zero distribution. They had been, they've been wiped out. Wiped out yeah. Well, and so like in many other industries as well, right. uh, yes, exactly. which we go through in the book. You know, we have uh, countless examples in the book of where they've been able to dominate domestically. Now, yes. the end goal is not, just domestic domination and it's not to reduce or eliminate dependency. Ultimately, they want to lead in the world. And so then they have to go out from China and become dominant uh, in the rest of the world so that ideally the rest of the world becomes dependent on China. 
Now, the question then is, how do they do this? How do the Chinese succeed? And, and you can tell by the, the title of the book, Enterprise China is a critical vehicle which the Chinese are using. And this is really the combination of the state and business enterprises. Uh, and they've come together in, in really a model that the West is not familiar with, is, is in many ways uncomfortable with. And the model suggests for us in the West that if you're doing competitive analysis, we in the West are comfortable looking at other companies and the supply chain, which is obviously what you, you spent a lot of time focusing on, and understandably so, but looking at um, at substitutes and, and customers and this kind of value chain analysis. In, in China, the state is now part of that unit of analysis. They're, they're not in the background, they're in the foreground, and they've created this new unit of analysis, which is what we call Enterprise China. Mm -hmm. uh, Enterprise China is absolutely the state-owned enterprises of which at the federal level, the level of Beijing, there's actually not that many of them, but it also includes provincial or uh, uh, state-owned enterprise at the level of the province, but also at the level of the municipality. So these are the state enterprises of which there's about 150,000. In addition to that, it includes what are called privately owned enterprises, which we talk about in the book as probably better named as state influenced enterprises, because the state is really controlling the financial decisions, the strategy decisions, the partnership decisions, the international expansion decisions, even down to, uh, you know, uh, board decisions and uh, leadership mm -hmm. decisions. Right. All right. Yeah. There's, there was a time when things were opening up in the 80s and the 90s, and, and people were thinking that, wow, you know, the Chinese are so entrepreneurial and like, Look in Wenzhou, they even built their own airport themselves without even working with the government. And look at this and look at that, that right. they, everything that they do. And, and really in the past, yeah, in the past 10 years, uh, it's been quite clear that, you know, the state and, and, and the party really has their hands on all of the relatively large companies, right? Uh, this, this is very clear. Yeah. Going back to, um, you mentioned made in China 2025. This was a, a policy that made a lot of noise. And then the Americans, the American government was not so happy about it. You know, a lot of, you know, inducing a lot of unfair competition. Then it went a little bit underground and, and how to say, not in plain light. But the same spirit is still there, right? Companies get a lot of subsidies for uh, automating their processes. They get a lot of subsidies in their, if they are in certain key sectors. This is still uh, very, um, very much at work, isn't it? Completely. Um, and look, uh, the, the Chinese government is not shy about talking about the tactics, not just the strategy, but how are they going to achieve this? So they talk openly about facilitating joint ventures with foreign firms and in some cases mandating it. Uh, they talk about and are very clear in terms of internal mergers and acquisitions so that the uh, companies inside China are not only huge in China, 
but in the rest of the world. So for the last three years, for example, uh, firms from China have had the largest number on the Fortune Global 500 list, which obviously ranks companies by size relative to revenues. Uh, so three years in a row, China has had more companies on that list than any other country, including the U.S. Um, and when you look at those companies, more than 40% of them are state-owned companies. But as Alan mentioned, even those that are quote-unquote private, they're not really private and independent. So, for example, Ant Financial, right, owned by Alibaba, was set to have an IPO that would have brought $30 billion in on the IPO and would have valued Ant Financial at over $300 billion. So that's bigger than Deutsche Bank, Goldman Sachs, uh, and throw in three or four more other banks combined. So that's a huge train going down the tracks. And not just anybody could derail it, but the government totally derailed it, plus fined Alibaba a few months later uh, over $2 billion in fines. So not just a small little slap on the wrist. So in most countries, that sort of derailment of that big of uh, initiative, which doesn't just happen in a moment, there was years of work behind that IPO. Uh, I mean, that's just one example to illustrate uh, China, the government is has a very heavy hand on even private companies and what they do or don't do. And in the end, it has to be aligned with what uh, the Chinese government is trying to do, or they'll derail those private plans. Uh, the delisting of Didi, which most people haven't heard of, but it's twice as big as Uber, right? So literally 90% of the value of Didi, uh, over $60 billion, was lost because the government said, you need to delist. Right, right. As you say, governments influenced uh, companies. So they, they have a policy and people have to to find their place within that policy or else, basically. Right. But but let me just let me just step back, Renaud, and add, and add. Um, this is not just to be clear, this is absolutely about companies, but it's also about the network. So the Chinese are are really determining and setting the rules uh, of the game in China. And it's not just who you partner with on a one-off basis, it's getting into the game. And that network and those relationships between buyers and suppliers, that network is dominated by state actors or strongly influenced by the state. Hmm. Uh, with this kind of interlocking ownership with the state owning, and we, we've seen this in, in, in the model, actually, and in, in, you're in Hong Kong with the Hongs of Hong Kong or the Chebol. It's, it's a different approach in China, but from our analysis, when we looked at medium and large firms, we could not find a single firm in China, private or otherwise, that did not have some equity ownership directly or indirectly but from the state. So it may be a partner that they have. The partner is 30% owned by a state entity or 12% owned. Mm. Or it, that whole network, there's the influence of the state, direct equity or indirect by talking about dictating partnerships, relationships, 
So if you're a Western firm, it, it doesn't mean you can't operate as a wholly owned entity in China. You can, but you need to break into that network. So when we talk about, you know, made in China 2025, it's more complicated. This is one tactic of many tactics, but at the end of the day, it's the rules of the game have been set, have been stacked in favor of the Chinese and, and really against the interest of Western firms. Having said that, there are strategies, there are approaches Western firms can take, which is what we talk about in the book. So hmm. the book talks about the challenges, but also what Western firms can do in facing the reality. Absolutely. Yeah. And you, you're right. When doing due diligence on relatively large companies, uh, well-established companies in China, there's often a few percentage of, of the capital owned by the local government or by another company that itself looks like it's you know, maybe 30% owned by the local government or by a state-owned state enterprise. And it's like, as you mentioned, it's, it's, it can be a very complicated network. Uh, absolutely. The, I think the most interesting to our audience, before we go into sort of the how to position uh, the company sort of to deal with that reality. But I'd like to just to come back on, on, on the third pillar, uh, which is winning globally. So if I'm a company in, in Europe or in the US and I hear that, I'm thinking, well, I'm, I, is my company at risk? Are they going to go after my market and try to squeeze me out of the market? So what are there certain industries where this is happening first and some industries that would be more insulated from that? Yeah, anything with technology and manufacturing is at risk. Look, uh, China is the world's factory, right? 30% of all value-add manufacturing happens in China. That hasn't been by accident, right? Um, and so when you take uh, information technology, which is one of the targeted areas, well, one of the important applications of information technology is in smart manufacturing. So it'll be applied in China, and then it'll be leveraged outside of China. And we've got lots of examples. So a simple one that lots of people are familiar with is high-speed rail. So when it started to be developed in China, they were totally dependent essentially on France and Japan, a little bit Canada. Okay, uh, Those companies came in, they had a heyday, uh, but then they were forced into partnerships. And before they knew it, some state-owned enterprises then were winning more of the internal China business. And over a period of less than a decade, many of those foreign firms found that their internal share in China had shrunk down into the single digits or low double digits, 15%. And you go, okay, that's a loss. Well, but then they found the Chinese state-owned enterprises competing against them outside of China, and they have lower capital costs, they have lower labor costs, so they and they have lower profit requirements. So when it comes to bidding, for example, Boston uh, and the subway, uh, the Chinese enterprises underbid all of the Western firms, so Bombardier, et cetera, by 30 or 40%. Well, if that is, a, as it was in this case, a municipal and state-sponsored uh, infrastructure project, 
it's hard to tell taxpayers, hey, we're going to spend 30 or 40 percent more because we think we should. No, you go as long as the bid met the sort of minimum technical requirements. In some cases, legally, you're obliged to take the lower off unless there's some uh, inherent risk in doing that. So then all these great high-tech companies in rail and rail transportation found themselves losing left and right to these Chinese companies. So there's an industry where the three-pillar strategy already unfolded. And, uh, you know, Hitachi in Japan, Bombardier uh, in Canada – are, are sort of seeing, you know, the full impact of this three-part strategy. And, and Renault, if I could, let me add one other yeah. dimension to this. And and that is, if you look at you look at the the world kind of at a very high macro level. If I'm a big Western company, of course I want to grow. I want to grow more rapidly than the world economy is growing. I look at Europe, relatively low growth levels year in, year out, 1% maybe. Uh, The U.S. is a highly contested market. The Japanese economy is uh, shrinking. Where am I going to look to grow? I'm going to look in the emerging markets Hmm. where we're going to see, because of a small base, we're going to see the potential for 5, 8, 10% growth. Those Hmm. are markets which historically Western companies have kind of ignored. They haven't taken all that seriously. The, the, the Chinese are brilliant at moving up from the bottom, and they are doing this, I think, in a very targeted way through the, their Belt and Road Initiative, where they're moving into places like uh, uh, Pakistan and uh, the uh, uh, it's certainly uh, Africa, much, uh, much of Africa, North Africa, even Eastern Europe. They're moving into those markets with, with, with the objective of... Uh, you know, using their size and their scale and and subsidized financing, moving in and dominating in those mm-hmm. markets. Now, that blocks out Western companies. If you can dominate that strategy of domination, if you can dominate in those emerging markets, think about what the next 20, 30, 40 years are going to bring for you. So mm-hmm. it, it's it's a strategy based on dominating in the, in China, using that scale to their advantage, using their relationship with the state to their advantage, going out into the world and competing head to head in Europe, North America, Japan, but also, you know, moving up from the bottom by targeting the emerging markets. Very, very, very smart strategy, very disciplined strategy. Yes, long term. Um, how to say that? That's what people sometimes don't grab is they, they, they work with the Chinese manufacturer and then they keep saying, well, they, they always think short term and they never want to lose money on one order and things like that. But they actually, have their vulnerabilities, I might add. They're, they're not perfect. They're, there's a lot of risks that the Chinese are facing. Right. Uh, but and, and at the same time, Chinese, uh, especially large Chinese corporations and, and, and state-owned enterprises and things like that, they, they don't think one year or three years or like next, wa- next quarter, right? They think five years, 10 years and, and more. And that's really where, um, I mean, this is really part of their strengths. I, 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 I would guess. Yes. You're absolutely right. Let's, uh, let's talk about companies that procure components or finished products from China. Right. And they have what you call upstream activities in China. Right. So they actually depend on China. Right. 
And there's a lot of talk these days about, you know, whether they should diversify their sources out of China, whether they should uh, they should move some manufacturing out of China. Uh, this, there's been a lot of talk about that, right? And then you cover that as well, what, what people can do. Uh, but first, um, in terms of risk analysis, if I'm a company that purchases maybe final products made in China, and maybe I, I, I purchase also some finished products made in another place, maybe it's made in Mexico, but some of the key components come from China. Uh, let's say it's in electronics, very hard to, to go around that. How should I do my risk analysis? <laughs> do, do you want to comment on that? Yeah, look, uh, it doesn't take just COVID to sort of bring to light the risk, right? of being upstream too dependent on China or solely dependent. Um, There's political risk. Uh, And we saw this before COVID with the trade wars, but now with COVID. uh, Look, you would be unwise to think that going forward, China and everybody else is going to get along. There won't be political risk. And therefore, you can be highly dependent in your value chain upstream in China, and you don't need to diversify. I think there's tremendous risk in that. So it doesn't mean, and we don't advocate, oh, get everything out of China, but it does mean that you would be wise uh, to have parallel sources in other countries. And the good news is, except for a few things, there are alternatives uh, to China. So the downside, and this is really important and goes back to Alan's point about the network, it's not just the raw materials. It's not just the labor costs. Where China makes it really difficult to go to Vietnam or the Philippines or someplace else is the infrastructure that China has put in place. China has spent more on physical infrastructure over the last 20 years than Europe and the U.S., combined. Okay. So the ports in China now are some of the most efficient ports in the world, the rail lines, the roads, et cetera. So that makes the movement of those upstream goods much more efficient. So if you say, hey, the cost to produce or assemble something is X in China and it's X minus 10% in Vietnam, that's only one factor and in the end, may not be enough to offset. But to that, you've got to add a little bit of risk analysis. And therefore, there are very few places or very few industries and in upstream value chains where you would say it's not wise to have some diversification uh, into other markets. Right. And um, the the risk arguably is higher if a company's main market is the United States, right, and Canada and the UK, let's say, than if it's maybe Germany, France, Eastern Europe. So this also has to be taken into account, I guess, the sort of a, um, how to say, a, a growing chasm between uh, between the US and, 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 and China, and, and both sides are kind of uh, well, working on that, right? They they are, and, and, and I think... One thing we want to emphasize, and we talk about a lot in the book, is is it really depends on the company's strategy and why and how they're using their supply chain. Hmm. If my company, for example, is 
importing, uh, I don't know, salt, salt and pepper shakers from China, finished products, low technology. These are not at risk, we don't think, of major disruption. The Chinese are going to continue to make them. It doesn't mean you shouldn't look at diversifying the factories you, you buy from. These are low-risk imports. Um, because they're unlikely to be targeted by tariffs. They're, 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 the, the, the issue of risk is ultimately how embedded are, is the technology. Hmm. And can you easily shift to different suppliers not just the single supplier, but the whole ecosystem of suppliers where you have the suppliers to the suppliers. And, and the challenge as well is that, and we're seeing this increasingly, we're, we're seeing Western companies are like, well, geez, we need to diversify. Let's set up, let's do a partnership uh, with a supplier in Vietnam. And they go to that supplier in Vietnam. And what they don't realize, at least initially, is that that supplier is 32% owned by the Chinese company that they were just partnering with. And the five sub-suppliers uh, in Vietnam, there's also an ownership back to China. So it gets all very complicated. And, and what we encourage is companies do more homework. They look at investing in options. And this notion of a China plus one, we, we think is a good strategy. At a minimum, we think companies need to diversify suppliers in China. So that they're not wholly dependent on single China suppliers. That's an easy first step. And while that's going on, look at investing in, in supply options outside of China, and particularly outside of the sphere uh, of these Chinese entities you're probably already partnering with. Right, right. Yeah, you make a good point about the example in Vietnam. And what we see very, very often is that the critical components will still come directly by truck from China. From China. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so put the, the, you had, the, you're the, fooling yourself, right? Yeah, but you yeah. need to do do the homework. Do the right. homework, right. right? In your in your book, you, I think it's the examples of uh, Walmart and Target. They uh, they buy directly from China, maybe a quarter to to a third of their product. But if you look at actually their dependency on China, it might be much higher because uh, yeah all of these even the garments yeah it's made in cambodia but where's the fabric you know um woven and dyed it it all comes from made in china and the accessories the buttons everything (laughs) absolutely it is um people need to have an an idea about that and um not just for uh let's say geopolitical risk analysis and things like that but also increasingly issues about Suspicions of forced labor, evaluation of environmental impact. I mean, there's going to be more and more pressure on companies to actually say, okay, this comes from there and this comes from there and so on. And this is a, um, uh, how to say, a challenge with the lack of transparency in general in, uh, in, in China. With nearly at the end of, uh, of, of the time here, um, if I could ask one more question, Okay, you mentioned China plus one is a good thing in terms of China plus one other country. And this has been, you know, maybe from SARS, I think. Uh, the SARS epidemics, people started to, to talk about that, I think, maybe it came from Japan. Now people are talking about China plus many. 
which is easy if I go back to the apparel example. It's it's uh, it's relatively easy if you go to making uh, uh, power tools, let's say, uh, or a screwdriver or something like that, uh, it, automated. It becomes already much harder, even though the products are not that uh, complicated. Uh, and now we hear some Japanese companies like uh, such as Honda and so on saying, when the market is China, the supply chain can be very, very Chinese. But when the market is not China, especially for North America, we have to aim for zero China. What is your um, general thought about that? Yeah, well, uh, first off, we talk in the book about if you're in China and you're serious about the China market, and this is a, a differentiating between using China as a, a factory for the world to looking at China as a market. And it, in, some, in some sectors, it is the single largest market mm-hmm. in the world. For, for example, many luxury goods and so on. If you are serious about being in China for China, then sourcing in China is a relatively low risk, high return kind of approach. Hmm. Once you move outside of China, now, uh, if Honda is saying we want zero exposure to China, I would say, first off, that it, it is, it's essentially impossible to, to have a zero exposure to China. Just as an example, a colleague of mine at Arizona State University had a team of people spent two years trying to understand the tracking the sources of every component in an automobile dashboard. Took two years to go back and look at first tier, second tier, third tier ownership, nested relationships. That these companies, Honda, I promise you, does not know the ownership of all the first, second, and third tier suppliers. It doesn't know them because there are tens of thousands of them, and they're mostly opaque. And so to suggest that as a target, I, I think is actually uh, distracting. Now, you could say we want to reduce it, we want to reduce our exposure, but but again, it's exposure to things that are in high that are at risk. There are many products and components that are really of low risk of being disrupted through trade, through tariffs, through political machinations. I would be focused on the high value add, high technology, where these are the industries targeted by the Chinese. I'd, I'd be much more concerned about those products and and, uh, and segments. Wow. Yes. Thoughtful response, thanks. Uh, which, which is representative of the book, which is uh, a book for for practitioners, right? A book with, right. let's say, uh, a lot of thinking went into it, and it's 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 not dogmatic. It's really uh, very realistic. Just as all the listeners could uh, could just experience, this is a, this was a very good um, uh, very good coverage of this uh, of this topic. Thank you so much, Alan Morrison and. Uh, Stuart Black again. So I'm going to say the title of the book again. It's easy to to remember. It's called Enterprise China, Adopting a Competitive Strategy for Business Success. Uh, You can go on Amazon or any place where you buy books. Uh, You can pre-order it online. It's coming out uh, in about one week. And uh, really, it's um, 
it's not difficult to read. There's a lot of graphs, as I mentioned, a lot of examples of of companies. Uh, I was I was blown away, really, uh, an enormous amount of, of of examples, I would say, and and uh, and, and and numbers. And uh, you really did a lot of um, nice research on on that. Alan and Stuart, uh, thank you very much. Wonderful. Thanks for inviting us to participate. That was great. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks again for listening to this podcast brought to you by the Sophies Group. We're on a mission to provide you with everything you need to manufacture effectively in Asia, including inspections, auditing, new product development support, contract manufacturing, 3PL warehousing and fulfillment, and much, much more across Asia's key manufacturing areas. Visit us at sofeast.com, that's S-O-F-E-A-S-T dot com, to learn more and get help. If you've enjoyed the podcast today, please do rate, review and share because it will really help others discover us too.